0: that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, Grasp the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity.
1: This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today I'll be talking with Faye Halpern, who has selected Edgar Allan Poe's 1843 short story, The Black Cat. As we discuss the story, Faye and I will also touch on some more general questions about unreliable narration and about stories that resist our efforts to interpret them. Faye Halpern, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary, is the author of Sentimental Readers, The Rise, Fall, and Revival of a Disparaged Rhetoric, as well as of numerous articles whose subjects range from unreliable narration to authorial intention from 19th and early 20th century American literature to advice on how to get published. Fay has recently signed a contract for her second book, The Afterlife of Sympathy, Reading American Literature in the Wake of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Faye is co-editor with Michael Tavell clark of the journal Ariel, a review of international English literature, and co-editor with Katra Byram and me of the Ohio State University Press Series on the theory and interpretation of narrative. Faye, is there anything you'd especially like our listeners to pay attention to as you read Poe's story?
0: Yes, I'd like you to pay attention to the cats. What is going on with the cats?
1: Okay. All right. Now here's Fay Halpern reading The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe.
0: The Black Cat For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not and very surely do I not dream, but tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me, yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found, which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these, I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth and in my manhood, I derive from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute, which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal entirely Black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. in speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion, which regarded all Black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point. And I mentioned the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years during which my general temperament and character through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance had, I blessed to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody more irritable more regardless of the feelings of others i suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife at length i even offered her personal violence my pets of course were made to feel the change in my disposition i not only neglected but ill used them for pluto however i still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, Much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, rasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine, all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation and then came as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a 100 times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow it was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending root. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart. I hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense. Hung it because I knew that in so doing, I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat I remembered had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house, Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as I thought. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months, I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat. And during this period, there came back into my spirit a half sentiment that seemed, but was not remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes and what now caused me surprise was the fact that i had not sooner perceived the object thereupon i approached it and touched it with my hand it was a black cat a very large one fully as large as pluto and closely resembling him in every respect but one pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body but this cat had a large though indefinite splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, heard loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This then was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses. And when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. It's evident fondness for myself, rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty, preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was a discovery on the morning after I brought it home that like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance however, only endeared it to my wife who as I have already said possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair, of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, the gallows. O mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me a man fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest anymore. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone. And in the latter, I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind. While from the sudden frequent and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness, uplifting an ax and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the ax in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally. I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the whole thing up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I usually dislodged the bricks. And having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this, I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here, at least then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast, which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep the blissful sense of relief with the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night and thus for one night at least since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed and still my tormentor came not. Once again, I breathed as a free man The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment, whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered, not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together and here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with the cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb by a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instance, the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It's it's Paul being Paul, right?
0: It's <laughs> very very ish yeah. that story.
1: Right. Okay. We'll get into some of that. I want to start with you know a little conversation we had before the recording today when you told me that you recently taught the story and tried to generate a debate among your students and then you later thought that that was a kind of counterproductive pedagogical move. Uh, could you explain?
0: Yeah. Sure thing. I ended up really inadvertently setting up a trap for my students. Maybe similar to the one that I was just rereading a little, some Poe, maybe a little bit similar to the one the protagonist of The Cask of Amontillado sets up for his frenemy, Fortunato. But I do swear I didn't mean to do it. So, <laughs> so what happened was I had assigned the black cat and I read it and I was so caught, by the status of the cats, that I decided this would make a really good class exercise. So I broke the students into groups where the different groups had to argue different positions. You know, one group argued that the two cats existed. Another group argued they didn't exist, whether they were a figment of the, the narrator's imagination or supernatural. And then another group argued like one existed and one didn't. And you know, it was like it was a really fun exercise. Uh-huh. It was a very lively class and yeah. the students got really into it. And some students felt really strongly about the position uh-huh. that they were uh-huh. in and their first essay rolls around and they could choose what they wanted to write about. And and a lot of them chose to write about the black cat and a lot of them chose to take the position that they had taken in the class exercise. And it was like by and large a disaster because I realized it is actually really impossible to have a convincing argument about the ultimate status.
1: Right. So it's not a question that can be adjudicated in a way, right? If uh, whatever position people take, you can't sort of give a counter argument. Is that?
0: Or, or that there is always a counter-argument, too. Yeah. If is, is like I said, Jim, there's always a counter-argument to whatever position System you take. take. Right, right. Yeah.
1: Okay. So one of the things that strikes me about it, too, is that there's a way in which the character narrator sort of wants his narrative to go there. Right? Because what strikes me about the story is he's putting all this attention on the cats, <laughs> And what he's really done is he's murdered his wife, right? (laughs) And even, like, when he describes, you know, gouging out the eye of Pluto, right, we get all this, I burn, I I blush, I burn, I shudder, right? And when he describes the act of murdering his wife, he's like, well, I immediately set to the task of covering it up. Like, there's no sort of sense of remorse or anything like that, right? Right? Although then we could say, well, maybe it comes out later when he's can't let the inspectors go and his guilt is right. coming and so on. But we can we, we yeah. not get back to that. But yeah. anyway, I mean, I think that if we th- just think about that a little bit, if the character narrator is in some way putting so much attention on the cats that he's hoping that his audience will get stuck there and keep the real thing, I mean, not, the, not that that's not real, but the greater, the greater crime, right, of yeah. murdering his wife. And yet Paul, I think, I would say Paul wants us to recognize that, right, that, that there's that distance between what the character narrator is focusing on and, and Poe sort of saying, hey, hey, don't forget about the real crime here.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I could even offer as further evidence for that point that the very moment that the narrator murders his wife is just entangled with the cat. You right. know, the narrator claims like he was trying to, you know, axe the cat, but then he missed. I mean, I hate when that happens. You miss, and then suddenly your spouse is a corpse. And yeah, so there's that little detail. So clear it is. Even at that moment, the narrator—I mean—that's like a plot moment where the narrator is entangling the cat. But then there's the movement of, of readerly interest, which the character narrator is trying to catch up in—in in this untangling this sort of impossible knot right. of
1: right.
0: what the, stat, the, the 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 status of the two cats are.
1: Yeah. So I mean, there's another way we could talk a little bit more formally about the kind of unreliable narrator the character narrator is, right? So mm-hmm. I think we could sort of clearly say he's an unreliable ethical evaluator, right? Because he, right. you know. But what about his reporting? I mean, I think to some degree your yeah. your question to your students and your the conclusion there is about we can say he's an unreliable reporter, but we can't sort of indicate The precise nature of that unreliability. No,
0: and that's what's really confounding, I think, about the story of the cats and thinking about the status of the cats. So let's say the cats don't exist, or you can even make a finer distinction and say maybe Pluto 1 exists, but Pluto 2 doesn't exist.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: So then, and then I say in response, or a reader says in response, well, but the wife says something about Pluto one, you know, says Mm -hmm. that it's a witch in disguise. So that seems to, how how do you respond to that? And with Pluto two, again, like there's mention of how the wife really liked it. And also the police hear it. Um, That's what, you know, Those the narrators cover. But on the other hand, so say you say, okay, so the cats exist Anyway, we can't, maybe I won't go into all the other possibilities, but, but I, I I think for everyone, there's this counter argument that makes it extremely hard. And so I, I did have some students say, well, we can't believe that the narrator was just making that up about, Mm -hmm. about the wife, especially maybe with the second cat. But on what grounds do you say that the narrator was making that up and not other stuff? Like yeah. once you let in the idea that the narrator is making some stuff up, I mean, how do you even know the narrator has a wife or that the narrator <laughs> has a new cat yeah, or you
1: that start.
0: the narrator is in jail? Like where does it start Right, once, once you start, <laughs> then, then it's like, right, right.
1: But if we say the story has an effect, right? I mean, that we, we feel a variety of things about oh. this character narrator and so on. And so it's, we could hypothesize anyway that Poe wants a kind of substrate of events, right, that did happen, right? And so we might say, well, he did murder his wife. He is in jail. He <clears throat> is expecting to be executed. And that's the occasion for his telling, right? That he's, he's telling this story the day before. He's about mm-hmm. to be executed for the murder of his wife. all right, so if we say that that's a substrate, then I think it raises the question of you know well, is does Poe give us sort of enough evidence to construct a kind of plausible account about why he would tell this story in this way with the cats and the wife, and so on, right, right and that kind of opens up a kind of psychological reading Uh of the story right
0: yeah well let me go i mean that's right and i and you know i think that psychological story is compelling because it invites all sorts of close reading you know what i mean like Uh go back and talk about you know even as a child There's hints that the narrator was a misanthrope, and even then had the seeds of cruelty within him. And you know that that would actually make a pretty good close reading focused paper. I think like it would be a way you could write about this story. But you know we we talked about this before a little bit, Jim. But what it doesn't do is at all account for the sort of powerful effect that this story have yeah. has of how horrifying it is yeah. um and i think that you well, can't then explain really what this story was meant to do it doesn't get at that
1: well i mean yeah all right let's stay with it for a little bit before, okay, before sure. we pull apart all right so one way to go would be to say the horror is in the murder of the wife. And there's also, the so there, there's that, right? It's terrible, <clears throat> him, you know, kills her with an axe. But Poe adds to that by having him tell the story in which he can't face it, he can't acknowledge it, he can't, and he's doing this very radical kind of contortion of the events, in which he's placing all this emphasis on the cats and and so on, and so part of what part of what the horror, and part of what the effect is, is that combination of the horrible event, the you know inability to come to terms with it, the sort of the mislaid or misplaced emotional response to his relationship with the cats. As opposed to his relationship with the wife, right? There's even a one way to now. Now I think I'm, I'm going a little bit further and speculating, right? That part of what's what's happening and part of why you ask the question of are any of the cats real, is that he's so interested in displacing the story of his relationship with his wife that he comes up with this other thing, right? It's striking to me that so often when the cats are mentioned the wife is mentioned too right mm-hmm. they're kind of a strategy of of kind of juxtaposition of them
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know and that's so so somehow if we if we stay with that yeah. we maybe we're getting somewhere right
0: mm-hmm. i'd want to say maybe you can see the also the the fact that it's almost like a double voicedness, maybe about how the wife always appears around the same time as he's describing the cats. Yeah. You know, on one hand, yes, it's that there's some sort of displacement that the the, the, lo- the loathing that he feels for his cats maybe is actually what he feels for his wife. Yeah, right. So the, the appearance of the wife also serves to make it really hard to figure out the status of the cats because it takes away the explanation that the cats aren't real. And I also wanna say, I mean, it's interesting to, to say that the most horrifying moment in the story is the murder of the wife, because that's like the, that's like a deeper reading of it. But I mean, I think a lot of pose readers would say the most horrifying moment is the final, yeah. you know, what's described in the final sentences yeah. where they torn away the wall and there's it. You know corpse slotted with gore with this crazy demon cat on right. her
1: head yeah so, no certainly and he goes yeah. out of his way right to talk mm-hmm. to describe that sound right yeah, and that the, yeah. this combination of the of, you know mm-hmm. the people suffering in hell and then the demons right, you're know, right. glorying in the suffering and
0: <laughs> just, <laughs> Exulting in it so
1: yeah so that's interesting in terms of recalcittus right because I'm like going, if if we go with this whole idea about it's all about the wife and so on, and then, you know, and like we get that passage when he's describing the second cat and how they're tormented by the second cat, and he describes when he's asleep, right, mm-hmm. the cat is there breathing right. on him, and he feels the <laughs> weight on his heart, and it's like, well, wait, is this the cat or is this the wife? what You know, <laughs> what, <laughs> right. what's going, right, so... So even so, so if we go that way, I'm at the end, I'm trying, I'm looking for a way to make the sound come out of the wife rather than the.
0: Oh, so you the, think the wife isn't really dead, or well, that's what I mean. That's air, or, or that's something the recalcitrance,
1: like that. right? Like I mean, she's yeah, yeah, yeah. got to be dead, right. right? But
0: well, also the cat. You know, as many of my students pointed out, like how is this cat surviving for four days without
1: right? Right. Food
0: or water. I mean, right. that's the as well. Right,
1: um, right, right. And, and why? And why is yeah. the cat? You know. And why is why is the cat not howling before that? Right,
0: <laughs> right, because right. it's a demon cat yeah. or a cat of conscience and wants yeah. the narrator to get caught. So, well, I do want to say like there's this funny part of the story too. I mean, we we don't usually think of this story as like. It's it's nature, documentary aspects, but it actually is not a bad account of what cats are often like, you know, that no. they are sort of all over you and underfoot and seemingly demonically trying to trip you. And also, you know, if you ever have people over, the cat will inevitably go to the person who most hates cats <laughs> and, and want to sit on that person's lap and... <laughs> So there's some like accurate right. Right. observations right. of how cats function.
1: Right. So those people <laughs> will be fans of this story. Totally.
0: Because, because totally. the cats
1: get what's coming to them. Yes. <laughs> the That's the accurate. character narrator acts out their <laughs> secret desire. Yes.
0: Right. Absolutely. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think, I mean, one of the things we're getting at is is the way in which you know, the story resists a kind of coherent account, I think, in a way that like the Casco Montiaro doesn't, right? Or right. the Telltale Heart, right? We can see right. the combination of the horror and the of the events and the and the horror of the psychology of the character narrators, you know, sort of reinforces each other. And mm-hmm. so although interestingly I would say you know, in the Casco Montiaro, like the unreliability at the end, my heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. You know, I finished yeah, walling him right. up. That there's a, like a moment of, you know, humanizing uh-huh. um, uh, Montresor yeah. there. You know that, and and that the, and right. to some extent that explains why he's telling this story. You know, 50 years later, it's That's still right, bothering he, him, and so on.
0: Yeah. Unlike this narrator, he'd gotten away with it.
1: Yeah. 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 But it's it's haunting him, so he's got to right. you know, to you who so well know the nature of my soul, I'm right. going to confess and so on. Yeah. But we don't. Right. So anyway, I think that you know that story's brilliant, and it you know, all these parts come together in this really kind of impressive and powerful way. Whereas this story is powerful, but doesn't seem to come together in that way, right? So if we're thinking about Paul and what he might be after with this story. One way to go would be to say, well, he's not, he doesn't have the same kind of command of this Mm -hmm. material that he does with the cask. Well,
0: I I would um, disagree with that interpretation. And I actually think that this story is very, I'm leaning more and more to reading it as an extraordinarily well-wrought story where the, not just that the misdirection is, intentional but that the impossibility of solving the mystery of the cats Uh is intentional and but also it's a constant invitation that the story offers to think about it it's like you cannot read the story and not think about it okay And, and um i actually you know in thinking about this this way of reading the story as as the the sort of the intentional knots that that Poe is trying to embroil the reader in it made me think about this line at the beginning when the narrator is first introducing the story and he says he says you know of course I'm not mad which obviously at that moment every reader is like of course you're mad <laughs> but then he says so he's saying you know what happened to me these events that have tortured and terrified me. They won't seem terrible. They'll seem Baroque.
1: Right. And
0: then he sort of issues a challenge to the reader, to, I mean, to his narratees yeah. in the story world. Perhaps some intellect may be found, which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, yeah. some intellect more calm, more logical. So he's sort of flattering his, his narratees with this, you know you'll figure it out right and i feel like that moment is a moment too where poe is saying this to his readers yeah yeah or that, double,
1: it's you know, kind of double coded in that way yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah 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 Yeah. exactly
1: yeah yeah and so you feel like all right poe's sort of laid down the challenge and so he writes the story in a way that's going to keep us embroiled in trying to meet the challenge
0: i think so and yeah. i mean that's what's If you think about Poe's own situation as a writer who was struggling to support himself, wasn't paid very much in the absence of copyright, needed to have readers engaging with his stories and talking about his stories, and, and what better way to keep readers talking than to write a story where you can't actually come at a solution? Uh-huh. but that you're going to feel like you can yeah, yeah. and that you're going to argue with people who come up with a different solution and tell them why they're wrong. But then those people can come up with evidence to say why well, you're wrong yeah. and it never ends really. Right,
1: right. And they'll be talking about it on a podcast 180 years later.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> my, my students will be excitedly arguing about it in class, yeah. never knowing what what yeah. is yeah. ahead of them. So yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's it's an interesting way to sort of then think about effect, right, and pose interest in effect, right? So w- one in which we feel like the effect is, we feel it and we dive in to say, well, how does it produce? Then we can sort of feel, you know, more or less satisfied, like, all right, we get it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like in the cask of Monteado, say, or the Telltale Heart. But here, like, we feel this effect. There's something really strong about this. Yeah. But then when we do that sort of inquiry into, well, you know, what is the source of it all? We don't come up with the same kind of sense of, all right, we understand how everything is working together, right? Yeah. So I mean, I,
0: I have, I don't know, what effect is it, this this sort of radical in, this impossibility of really solving that yeah. question, but it's, it's a different way he's doing it than someone like, you know, Henry James, where it's also really ambiguous a lot of uh-huh. time. What yeah. you know, what um, the conclusion you're supposed to draw is, because this story makes you feel like you can draw a conclusion. Uh-huh. It. And it yeah. almost sets a trap for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I right, think that's right, right. other kinds of authors who use ambiguity.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I mean, I like your defense of that as a pretty powerful thing to be able to pull off, right? To keep the audience in this sort of constant quest for yeah. resolution or for all right, I can make sense of it all, but. The story still resisting it, right?
0: That you might not realize until you start talking about it with someone yeah. or you're writing about it yeah. and hearing what yeah. someone else's view is, yeah, and, or, or
1: teaching it to to yeah, teaching <laughs> it.
0: right. I should have been, I realized I should, I mean, I tried, you know, to play the devil's advocate during yeah. this exercise and say, you know, but how do you explain that, yeah, and how do you? Not that, but my students sort of intrepidly continued trying to, you know, insist that this was the solution to the story. I mean, one of the conclusions I had about the story and and was that it 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 really produces the kind of it it's an invitation for this idea of forensic fandom. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Say more about that
0: yeah well you too jim (laughs) um, you know this idea that that some you know contemporary especially like serial tv shows and and certain movies inspire this as well that you you know they generate a lot of interest on the part of fans who then really try to like comb over the details Mm. and figure out exactly what happened and possible inconsistencies. And it generates all sorts of like really interesting and heated conversations about the narrative, yeah. but it invites a certain kind of analysis. It's not close reading, <laughs> the different kind of, it puts you in a sort of detective orientation, right, right. Yeah. the thing you're considering. Yeah,
1: yeah, and a real focus on individual pieces and then how does that piece fit with that piece and yeah turns it into a puzzle uh, yeah. yeah yeah
0: it's a puzzle text and yeah. i like that reading of poe because he was the progenitor of yeah. you know the detective story right unless right, right. i mean maybe i'm i'm yeah. sure somebody, if that's not true someone in the audience will say no actually <laughs> yeah yeah
1: but he's he gets a lot of credit for it and, and he was uh, you know, yeah. he's he's an early practitioner anyway, and he was yeah. good at it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And so both that maybe there's a way that he was writing a detective story, even though this seems like a horror story, yeah. but also that he was maybe the progenitor of forensic fandom mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that you know, we right. think of contemporary right. productions mm-hmm. as more this is a real contemporary phenomenon. But I think the story invites that, that kind of scrutiny.
1: Yeah. The
0: kind of scrutiny that actually, you, at least with this story, which it also invites, it's like paradoxical, invites it, thwarts it, but in thwarting it, makes it continue endlessly because you can never get to the bottom of right, it. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I challenge our listeners, can you get to the bottom of it? Can yeah. you solve the problem of these cats and what their status is? are and maybe that question has so much urgency because it causes so many problems like the murder of his wife like you almost think in solving that problem maybe you can solve the sort of mystery of you know what the narrator thinks he's doing or how serious the narrator or does the narrator feel guilt about murdering his wife but it's a kind of displaced guilt
1: yeah yeah Right. Well, maybe yeah, that's probably a good place to end on, uh, sort of Poe as progenitor of forensic fandom and the idea that there's something remarkable about sort of the way in which he can keep us <laughs> questioning and engaged in, well, I think I might just do this. I'll get to the end of it.
0: Yeah. What about the detail?
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay. Well, any concluding comment that you'd like to make?
0: I would just say that you shouldn't let your students write about the black cat. You would say? Or at least I would warn people from oh, letting students write papers about the black cat.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, good. All right. Well, thanks very much, Faye. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much. Um,
1: and I want to thank our listeners and say that we'd appreciate your feedback. You can send it to us at Project Narrative at osu.edu or on our Facebook page or to our Twitter account, which is at PN Ohio State. And you can find uh, additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all.